Hello and welcome to Primary Sources, a spin-off podcast from the Doctor Who show, where we take what fans were saying about Doctor Who in the 80s and the 90s, generally in letters to Doctor Who magazine, but not always, and we riff on it. The conversation might stick closely to what's said in the letters, or it might go somewhere else entirely. This is podcasting without a safety net. For this episode, which I can exclusively reveal will be the last episode of Primary Sources for a little while, I'm joined by my Doctor Who show co-host, Dave. Hello, Dave. Hi, Rob. Now, I'd better explain what's going on to the people out there, because this is going to be news to anyone who's not in the inner sanctum, so to speak. I've told a few people in recent months that the end was near for primary sources, but certainly not telegraphed it on social for months on end, because frankly, I don't do long dramatic BS farewells. No, but the moment has been prepared for. Very much so. (laughs) Because, yeah, look, this is the 24th time around for this show without missing a single month in all of that time. And I just want to have a little break from producing it. No more, no less. I mean, I love talking Doctor Who with you, Dave, and that's going to continue in the list makers and our big monthly shows and any sort of alternate galaxies we do and all of that sort of stuff. But for this concept, I just feel it's time for a little rest. That's fair enough. I know that they do take a bit of effort, and particularly having guests on means you've got to tie somebody up to a particular time and everything. And mm. no, if 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 we need to take a break to keep it fresh, I'm all for that. Yeah, and look, people, I do have some ideas for some specials, maybe around Christmas or Easter or maybe both, where rather than talk to you, Dave, or talk to a guest. I'm going to throw a few letters out there on the socials and literally anyone out there in the listening audience can grab a mic and send us a response to the letters and I'll cobble together a show with lots of voices, lots of thoughts. It'll be very different to our tight 20-minute shows where there's just one guest answering the letters. But I think it'll be really fun to try something different and if you've ever wanted to be a voice on the show, you'll be able to be one. Wow. Live auditions. Open auditions. Basically, yes. And and look, then in the future sometime, you know, I'll, I'll have the time and I'll have the headspace to make a new run of episodes. Even if you and I, Dave, blast out, you know, half a dozen at some stage. Well, there's six months of content in itself and the show will live again. But for the time being, this is going to be it, folks. Well, that's fair enough, but there'll still be plenty of content on the Doctor Who show feed. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So before we get into it, I'll just say you might have already noticed this episode runs long. That's because it's a double episode where you're going to read some letters to me, Dave, and I'm going to read some letters to you. And then I'm going to thank everyone who's been on this crazy journey with us. How does that all sound? Have I talked long enough? I think that sounds great, but I think it means I better crack into it. Yeah, let's get into it. So this is one of those occasions where we are flipping it for the first half. I'm going to read letters to you. Now, I'll say in advance, Rob, I have picked these letters out of a couple of different issues of local fanzine Sonic Screwdriver, Mm -hmm. just because I wanted three letters of variety. And sometimes if there's a topic of the month, that doesn't always happen. Uh, So I have done that, but they're both from a very similar era, so I don't think that'll matter. The first two, however, are from Sonic Screwdriver issue 68 from September of 1991. 91. I was in year 11 at school. Goodness me. (laughs) Yeah, a long time ago. The first is from John Papadatis. Mm -hmm. It says, I was pretty disappointed to read that the Tom Baker era tape would not contain the whole of Sharda in some sort of comprehensible format, with bridging scenes to explain what occurred in the non-produced scenes of the script, but instead episodes from Seeds of Doom, Sunmakers, and Leisure Hive. These stories are complete and should eventually be released as such. 
If this happens, there will definitely be one disappointed fan. I mean, I've already got Seeds of Doom and Sunmakers on tape. Oops, that's illegal, isn't it? Anyway, all the best for the future, John Papadatus. <laughs> John Papadatus. The first thing I think of is the way, the, the little comment at the end, like, oh, I've already got these on tape. <laughs> the way Doctor Who fans, it, it, well, in Australia at least, I think the same in the US where they had a lot of repeats, we would have these things on tape off the telly and they were in pretty good nick because we'd recorded them straight off the telly but we still had to go and buy the tapes as well on top of that and here john wants these episodes but he's already got them yeah it is that fabulous fan thing isn't it like like my, my dad and i between us we had a pretty much complete run of classic doctor who on dubbed or off-air vhs but i still went out and bought the nice ones with the nice covers and you know yeah. paying 25 30 bucks a tape for them yeah uh, in some cases when i was importing them from the uk like 50 or 60 bucks for a double pack yeah uh, for something we had on you know a tdk 180 video yeah and such when we look back now such a fragile format you know if your machine went a bit haywire you could just chew up a tape and it was wrecked for all time yeah yeah absolutely absolutely but uh this was that period would you remember rob when they were churning out the years tapes yes and they'd done the hartnell and troutons and they were loose episodes and then they were working out what to do with the other ones yeah and so what he wants he wants to see sharder it sounds like yeah, I, th- I think so. Obviously not something you would see on the ABC, even in Australia with our repeat schedule, because they never finish the thing. Yeah, look, I think that's a fair wish, but maybe they already had it in mind. Well, yeah, look, we can do Sharder as its own thing. You know, we can get Tom Baker on on doing some weird, you know, bridging stuff. And we can have the Years tape and a Sharder tape and get twice the money. <laughs> uh, yes, but they gave up on them being uh, collections of just made random episodes like the Pertwee Years tape was and did something else. Yeah, that's right. And uh, this makes me think of the the recent season uh, 22 Blu-rays, which had the Colin Bakey years on it. And as I was saying to Dylan Rees when he was on the show some months back now, that was the first time I'd ever seen the Colin Baker years was on that Blu-ray release. Yeah, because I, I had known of these tapes, the Years tapes, and I thought, oh, well, why am I going to buy the Colin Baker years one? Because I, I know all these stories and I didn't really appreciate or might not have even been too interested in at the time Colin Baker coming on and just doing little witty asides in between clips. It didn't sort of appeal to me, but I really loved watching it now as an older fan. Yeah, it's really great to have them, isn't it? Yeah, because you sort of get Colin at the time telling stories in a way that he might not tell them today and even acting in ways he might not act today. Like, as I was joking with Dylan, he seems to come back after every second clip making comments on the women in each clip. It's like, oh, I don't think he'd do that today somehow. Yes. Shall we move on to another one? Uh, Yes, let's do. This one is from Philip Nichols, and it says, Dear Doctor Who Club of Victoria, I am writing for the first time to this club, even though I have been in this club for two years and I've only been to one function. Oh, dear. I don't think Colin Baker rules, as you stated in Sonic last issue. He put the show down in 1985 when it got cancelled. I would like to see Sylvester McCoy and Sophie Aldred back in their respective roles. By the way, I also follow Star Trek. Don't you think that the Americans should get Doctor Who and make it spectacular? Make (laughs) movies out of it too, just like what happened with Star Trek? Well, that's it from me. I hope I see you and talk more at the next meeting in October. Wow. 
that's really out of step with fandom of the time, which was just terrified of the Americans getting a hold of Doctor Who in any way, shape or form. I mean, I, I think there was a bit of excitement where it was like, oh, Spielberg, Amblin Entertainment, whatever it was. You know, Spielberg's got it. There was sort of some excitement there, maybe because people regarded Spielberg as maybe being a bit more than American. Maybe he was like an internationalist, you know, yeah. because he was so, so big, he was just beyond being American. But the thought of, like, American TV getting a hold of Doctor Who, no, God, fandom hated that idea. So this guy's radically out of step with fandom of the time, I think. Yeah, I think so too, but clearly he was watching, I mean, in 91, it must have been early episodes of Next Gen, and um, I think Star Trek Six came out in 91, mm. maybe 92, but, yeah, he's looking at it and going... Well, they could do that with, you know, this tin pot cheap 60s show in America. Well, why not do it to Doctor Who? And so many, as we've commented on over the years on our show, so many episodes a year on American TV, like the 24 episodes a year format. Yeah, yeah. Which um, which Mike Solko and I actually talked about on a uh, on a primary sources, and Mike was saying it's just you know murder. It's it's nuts to try and make that many episodes a year, and I I did get his point. Although I made the counter that in a show like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, for example, it meant that you could have some experimental shows. You could have sort of the core stuff, the arc stuff, but then you could do some really weird experimental stuff on the side, and it wasn't really tripping anyone up because there were enough episodes to play with. And I kind of like that in some ways. Oh, I don't know. I don't know whether I like more having six to eight episodes, event television per year, or 24 episodes. Some are going to be crap, but some are going to be amazing. And some are going to be highly experimental. And then years later, you can go back and sort of pick and choose through them. And you have a lot of variety. I think as well, the era does matter. I mean, these days where TV is downloadable it's streamable you can binge it very easily mm. the idea of working through 20 something episodes uh whilst you're trying to get through all the other things you want to watch does seem a little bit terrifying as opposed to well every night at 10 o'clock on thursday they transmit an episode of babylon 5 and i watch an episode of babylon 5 and on tuesday night at 11 o'clock there'll be an episode of deep space nine and that's when i watch my episode of deep space nine that's that's just on my calendar and it's all just sort of the thing you could work your week around they were on late at night weren't they oh they were well, they, famously for the treks here i think channel nine had them yeah and they they quickly worked out that it didn't matter whether you put them on in prime time or at 11 p.m the same number of people watch star trek yeah because no casual viewer wanted to watch it and fans would watch it at any time so they worked out, they put it on at 11 o'clock, the ratings are the same. Why, yeah. why would we waste a primetime slot? And in fact, I don't know about up there, but down here it was on after the footy show, which was a, a live sporting slash variety show, which was the number one show in Melbourne at the time. And they would just let it sometimes run an hour over. So you had to set your VHS to record Star Trek to start any time from the scheduled time to about an hour and a half after it was meant to. Yes. Let it go for three hours so you could be guaranteed of catching Star Trek. That's how little they cared about it. Yeah, yeah. Just just to completely bamboozle our overseas listeners, we had the footy show too, but it was the NRL footy show, not yes, the I, AFL I, footy I show. I thought so, yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so very similar situation here. Very similar. One final letter from me. Okay. And we're now jumping forward two and a half years to Sonic... 84 in May of 1994. Wow. Okay. Okay. I'm at uni now. I'm in my middle year of uni. And I'm in high school. Okay. Dear Sonic Screwdriver, 
I just read my first copy of Sonic Screwdriver and it's great. It's like Doctor Who magazine, but specifically for local Victorian fans. Wow. This, this letter is about... <laughs> profound, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> this, le- this letter is about Doctor Who, The Nude Adventures. Ooh. I refer to Ben Aronovich's Transit. Ooh. I don't see the necessity in constantly referring to any of the characters' breasts, as he frequently does. Benny's <laughs> breasts did this. Then this happened to Catastrophe's breasts, etc. Now, is this necessary for a good Doctor Who story? I think not. The TARDIS is hardly ever used. Would the Doctor really spend valuable time when he should be chasing around after the supposedly deadly foe, a pathetic computer virus, and rescuing the ever-wimpy Benny, bring back Ace, making pasture in what we assume is his house? Meanwhile, upstairs, Blondie and Kanye 2 are having sex. More graphic, descriptive detail. What happened to the good old stories where the Doctor would romp around thrashing the proverbial pants off the Daleks and Cybermen and the like? Would the Doctor feel threatened by something called a Houthi? A better name in line with the TV series would have been a space creature, a spore creature, or the fungoids. Mm. Where have the good old enemies gone? The Master, the Valiar, the Rani, the Daleks, Autons, or the Sontarans? Instead, we get the Houthi, subsets named Fred, voodoo priests, and overgrown turtles named Shalonians. The concept of a youthful master in the land of fiction was pathetic. It would have been good to have the old master back in the land of fiction instead, rather than have his namesake turned up. One of the literal thousand more enemies would have been more interesting. Well, reading the new titles and plots, as the Doctor might say, the future holds true and only time will tell. Till next time, Warp Warp, Andrew Headley. Oh, Andrew Headley, he makes me feel so conflicted, Dave. <laughs> because yes. on one hand, yeah, I, I get you, Andrew. I, you know, why are we talking about breasts? Why are people having sex? This is Doctor Who, you know, for God's sake. We shouldn't be doing that. There is part of me that still feels that way. And even as I get older, I'm, I maybe feel more that way. I feel more conservative about it. But at the same time, I think what the New Adventures did was absolutely quite right to try new things and to, to have situations that wouldn't have happened on telly. You know, we've, we've spoken in past months about the missing adventure, uh, Goth Opera, that you read on your holiday some months back. Yeah. And I said to you at the time, you couldn't do that on TV. And, and you obviously agreed. Like, there's no way that could have been a Davo episode on TV. And again, there's part of me that's like, oh, I wish sometimes the books would be like, I'm just reading a story that could have been on TV. Some of the recent NSAs, the Peter Capaldi NSAs were like that. It was like, this is just like a TV episode. It's amazing. But at the same time, I think it's quite right. This is the conflict in me, Dave. I still think it's quite right to do different things and to have Davo in this big, violent vampire adventure <laughs> as well because that's variety and it's interesting. And I guess maybe as long as you do have some traditional type stories and some of the newer stuff, it all evens out in the end. But when you're in the middle of the, the hurricane, like this guy is at the time, and you can't see a, a way out of it, everything's new and and weird and uh they've wrecked doctor who when you can look back from decades after like we do now it's like oh well, yeah that that was a bit of a weird story but then these other ones were very traditional and then we got this other range of books that did x y and z and oh such a rich tapestry and maybe that's the thing we should remember as fans sometimes when we're in the immediate vicinity of something we don't like step back from it a year five years ten years we think of things a lot differently 
yeah, it's something that I've been reflecting on a bit lately is that we look back now, and I do personally, at you know, that the, the Virgin Range and all the rest of it, I have very fond memories and good nostalgia, and I love so many of them. But you forget that at the time they were new Doctor Who, and fans react in a certain way to new Doctor Who, and it's usually <laughs> quite critical. And it's yeah. usually, usually sort of harking back to what, what had happened. And I, I think that that was the case here. And I agree with you, Rob. I think it's great that Doctor Who innovates and tries different things. Sometimes they work and they set a whole new path for the show to keep going for years and years. Sometimes they don't quite work. We go, okay, well, that didn't quite work. And I, I think that Transit did push a few envelopes probably a little bit too far. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you can't have sex in Doctor Who, particularly in, in the, uh, the the written form, but, you know, do we need to have lots of descriptions of breasts? Mm. Infamously, that book, one character described trying to get the taste of semen out of their mouth. Did we need that? Ooh, yeah. <laughs> you know, no, you can, you can have sex without that. Yeah. Oh, you can. <laughs> the, the, the Karma Sutra shows many ways. Anyway, we won't go down that rabbit hole. Uh, yeah, look, I, I get you. And look, it's similar to what we were saying a moment ago about US television shows having 24 episodes a year. When the NAs were coming out monthly, and you've also got MAs, and it was similar with the EDAs and PDAs, and even the NSAs in their early days, there were tons and tons of those every year, you've got the room to play and do new things and get this variety in there. So I, I'm i all for it, but at the same time, I am empathetic to some of his complaints as well. So, I'm oh, I'm conflicted. <laughs> even after I've talked about it for five minutes, I'm conflicted, Dave. Fair enough. Well, look, they were three different snapshots of the early 90s from local fandom. Uh, I enjoyed your reactions, but Rob, it's a double episode. It is. Is this, in fact, a double A side? (laughs) It is a double A side. Thank you. We don't talk much about the Beatles uh, World Cup that John O'Park and I do, but yeah, let's talk about it now. (laughs) No, we won't go down there. Uh, Dave, I have in front of me uh, Doctor Who magazine from the year 1986. Goodness me, I, I started school. February, to be precise. I started school on 1 February 1986, so there you go. Well, here we are. We're going to see what people were saying back then. I'm going to find a photo of me in February 1986 and tweet it when this episode goes out. Marvellous. I'll I'll have to find one of me in like 94, and what was the other year? 91. Yeah, okay. A a high school photo and a uni photo. All right. (laughs) This first letter is called True Fans? Question mark. Over the past couple of months, you have published a number of letters in your magazine which consist of attacks and sometimes abuse of the television series and your own monthly. These fans then usually sign off under phrases such as a true fan, an avid fan, and so on. If they love the program so much, why do they feel the need to heap criticism upon it in public? Issue 107 letters were particularly bad. Some of the avid fans' ideas left me cold. Is he slash she really serious? A witch or a Buddhist as a companion? It may be good science fiction, but it certainly isn't Doctor Who. Other attacks on this series also annoyed me. Apart from Time Lash, the series was excellent. Certainly Attack of the Cybermen borrowed from other stories, but it ranks far above Earthshock, which I liked as well. 
There have been moans about the reappearance of old monsters, and perhaps there were too many in one season. But nobody can deny it was the Daleks, Cybermen, and the Ice Warriors who brought Who fame. Finally, a few words on the magazine. Still great. I was glad to see Gallifrey Guardian has returned to its original format. The interviews are great, although there are still no Pertwee archives. The last one was Monster of Peladon about 13 months ago. The comic strip is vastly improved. And that's from Patrick McConkie in Belfast, Dave. I have a couple of comments on that one. <laughs> yes. Um, first of all, it's a bit of a drive-by. Uh, one thing that we have spotted over the course of doing this mini-podcast is proved again here, and that is... If you just end your letter with a bit, by the way, DWM, I think you're awesome. <laughs> you are much more likely to get published, it seems. And that's been proven again here. The other thing that I think has been really interesting guesting on this podcast, which, you know, Rob, you've been you've been the driver of, and it's been, been your project, and it's been fun to take part. But mm-hmm. the number of times when we read a letter and you just think to yourself, that could be a forum post in 2022. Yep. or in 1990 or whatever, and just some of the themes that don't change. And this real sense of gatekeeping in fandom, this real sense of you're a real fan, but you're not, and they don't like the story, so they're not a real fan. I like the stories, oh, but I don't like Timelash, so it's okay to not like one. Is that the threshold? Yeah, uh, and you're, you're not allowed to say you're a real fan. Yeah, all of that's just so predictable and timeless so that that to me wasn't just a genuinely interesting point to hear and it's something we've come across so many times you know the reaction to the new series reaction to new doctors reaction to new ideas there, there is a, a a comfort in some ways of knowing that some of the let me just say it some of the we get in fandom now mm. isn't a creation of the modern era it is, is actually something that's been around so that's that's interesting. The other point I did highlight, though, is him saying attack was better than Earthshock. Yeah. That's like, not really? conventional <laughs> wisdom, but it's it's interesting to think about where mm. this would be. I mean, we're, we're so used to every time we get a new season, we've probably watched the previous seasons of New Who a number of times, certainly our favourites. For this writer, Patrick, was it? Yes, Patrick McConkie. Yeah, for Patrick, he's seen Earthshock. Several years have passed, he's seen Attack. And his memory is, that's better than something I saw. But he's probably only seen Earthshock once. Yeah. It's probably faded in the memory. And Attack would have been a very exciting season opener. So, like, it's kind of fun to laugh at it now, because that's just not where the conventional wisdom is. Yeah. But also, yeah, like, it, it makes some sense. Yeah, and, and this other bit I'll pick out again. It seems in a previous letters page, someone had suggested the Doctor should have a, a witch or a Buddhist as a companion. And Patrick says, it's, it's okay, science fiction, but it certainly isn't Doctor Who. And I think, good God, a, a witch or a Buddhist would be a great companion, I think. Yeah, imagine taking um, Mrs. Hawthorne along as a companion. Or well, exactly. Tom Tomney from The uh, Involvable Snowman, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, people say some strange things in these letters pages. Yeah, is he a real fan? Yes. <laughs> Patrick, let us know if you're listening. (laughs) (laughs) This next letter, Dave, is called Unprofessional. Ooh, I hope it's not about me. (laughs) You've, You've been a model of professionalism in all these episodes, Dave. I've been a regular reader of Doctor Who magazine for the last few years. Through its ups and downs, 
and some of the most interesting features have been the interviews with former cast members. For this reason, I was greatly looking forward to the interview with Matthew Waterhouse, issue 107. But upon reading it, I felt compelled to write and express my displeasure at your agreeing to print certain of his remarks. It was very unprofessional for an actor to publicly criticise a fellow performer, as Matthew Waterhouse did in the interview. I'm referring to his comments on Wendy Padbury, the actress who portrayed Zoe in Doctor Who in the late 1960s. <laughs> as if people reading this wouldn't know. Um, Mr. Waterhouse says her performance was embarrassing and rather rudely refers to Miss Padbury as this woman playing it like a pantomime. He didn't have the courtesy to mention her by name. I'm not disputing that everyone has the right to his or her opinion, and Mr. Waterhouse is fully entitled to his views, but surely some editorial discretion should have been used in this case. Criticism and debate are part and parcel of being a Doctor Who fan, but I cannot agree that personal abuse aimed at one of the people without whom your magazine would not exist. I didn't know Wendy Padbury was a publisher. Um, <laughs> has any place within its pages that Steve Brackley, Bogner Regis in West Sussex. Wow. <laughs> um, first quick highlight thought. It, it is definitely from that point in DWM where they still hadn't done in-depth interviews with a lot of the big regulars. And so an interview with a regular companion or a doctor was still a big deal as opposed to when I was, you know, buying DWM uh, 10 or more years later. And it's like, we've got Nicholas Courtney again. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. we've, we've tried to find a new angle to interview Tom Baker again. Um, so that's, that's you know, a nice little reminder of a bygone era. I'll take his comments in reverse. Should DWM have printed, in inverted commas, unprofessional comments? Absolutely. If Matthew Waterhouse wants to say that, let's hear his view. And then let's debate his view. I don't think that's a particularly hard one to knock back there, Steve. So I uh, disagree with you on your gatekeeping there. Yeah, well, I'll jump in and say there is a reply to the letter, which I might read now that we've kicked off the, the discussion. Yeah, go on. The magazine says apologies to Steve and any other readers who were offended by the Waterhouse interview. However, obviously we have to try to print accurately what an actor slash actress has felt about the series. That's what we're here for, without being hurtful or unnecessarily offensive to anyone. And fair enough, too. As for the comments he's referring to, look, I must admit when he first said that Matthew Waterhouse was critical of fellow performers, I thought, it's Lala or Tom. Right. And, and you know, I'd understand that because we know all the relationships that were happening there. Now, Wendy is really bizarre, but as he went on and as I thought about it, it feels very Doctor Who 1986, where there was this run of companions, particularly from the Davo era, and Davo himself in many ways, who did the show, put their all into the show, were professional on the show, but left it and were a little bit embarrassed by the show. Mm. Left it and it was a bit of a millstone, particularly for people like Waterhouse. Uh, Janet Fielding's another example. It, it really was a millstone that killed their career in many ways. And they have gone through a bitter phase. And it's one that might have seemed unpleasant at the time, but we look back and it's fairly understandable. I mean, Davo did have a very bitter phase. Tom Baker had a very bitter phase. John Pertwee, I don't think he was ever bitter, but he certainly had a period where he was 
I'm not Doctor Who. I'm I'm doing other things. I want to be more than Doctor Who. And then as he got towards the end of the career, he's like, yeah, they love me for Doctor Who. I'm going to be Doctor Who. That's not an unusual thing. So look, was Matthew foolish given those views to go into DWM and put them in print? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I think that probably was a dumb thing to do. Mm. But it reminds me of just that bitterness that a lot of ex-actors felt in in the mid-1980s. Um, Peter Purvis, he didn't want anything to do with Doctor Who. While, you know, he was trying to get out of Blue Peter at the time, never mind reliving Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maureen O'Brien, she didn't want to talk about Doctor Who for the best part of 30 years. Uh, they just didn't do interviews about it, which was sensible. So, oh, dumb, dumb thing to do, Matthew, but I get it. Yeah, but doesn't it give us great fodder? Like, I want to go back and read this uh, mm. issue now. And also, when I, I'm looking at the Mythmakers DVDs and they have footage of someone doing an interview in the mid-80s or the early 90s or whatever before the uh, the show circuit has come calling and before they've got their patter down where they just tell the same old stories yeah, yeah. around the world and all of that sort of stuff. Because when someone goes out and sticks their neck out to say something like this. I mean, it says he didn't call her by name, but he's obviously referring to her and such. It feels way more honest than someone saying, oh, it was all fun and games and jolly japes and, you know, we we sat around having jam sandwiches at lunchtime and, you know, lashing some ginger ale. Mm -hmm. Wasn't it fun to make Doctor Who? And you think, oh, come on, that sounds like BS. When someone does stick it out there, you can generally assume it's probably on the money or at least on the money as far as their perception goes for them to do that yeah and, I, and, and like you know, I, would, I would always much rather those more honest sort of things when i saw eccleston earlier this year there was a feeling that when he called a spade a shovel it was it was fair dinkum and i like that and you know this this was the period where a lot of people didn't sort of feel like the the convention circuit was a circuit and they needed to be booked every year and they were making income from it and that to put on a performance it was a bit more sort of drop in drop out say what you felt even even like um cricket commentators i used to love when ian healy was interviewed as when when he was the wicketkeeper for australia because he would just say stuff that no one else would say and it was funny and it was insightful and it was interesting and it was just always fantastic. And, and many of the stars of sport, film, are the people that go on chat shows and say things they shouldn't say. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's funny in today's culture. People, people pretend to be outraged, but I think people secretly love it. I think so know. too. <laughs> okay, look, to round out, it's a very short one here. And this could go in all manner of directions. I don't know. Excellent. Uh, it's called Briefly, because it is very brief. Why won't you rotten lot leave Colin Baker alone? Personally, I find Colin Baker the best doctor yet, what with him forever changing his moods, trying to give the TARDIS a complete repair, and his terrible puns. So give him a break, eh? Colin's the best of the rest. That's from Paul Horn, Mount Nod in Coventry. So many directions that could go in. I know. I Look, know it's a cruel one to pick. My initial reaction is if you put Jodie into that instead of Colin, it could also be written in 2025. Um, that, yeah. That, that yes. sort of sense of you can't criticise the current Doctor, that's not right. And yeah, okay, fair enough. But the thing that I guess mo- I most want to highlight is that interesting thing in fandom and sometimes a difficult thing in fandom where you are in a minority against a very vocal majority. And this was a period where 
Colin was being beaten up by fandom. Uh, mm. There were no doubt negative letters to DWM that they would print. DWB had now just become the Colin and JNT bashing machine. Uh, lots of local fandoms were very negative. I'm sure you'd go to club events and people would be very negative. These these people who were teenagers in the in the Tom Baker era, and now they were probably not the right age to be appreciating Doctor Who, but they are the right age to be running a fan club and to be running a magazine. Yeah. And, and, and so they're out of step with people watching it. It's good in fandom when people can disagree and have a jovial conversation. And I think that some of the best conversations we've had, both on the show or with... Uh, friends and, and, and followers and listeners on Twitter have been where we've gone, oh, that's a really different perspective. Or somebody comes up and they're like, you know what? I really like this thing that nobody else does. And I'm going to ironically and, and funnily defend this thing. And, and you know, pe- people start to become known in sometimes on podcast on fandom because they're the defender of that story or that doctor mm-hmm. or whatever. And that's, that's really lovely. Um, but there are also times when you're the one who likes something that nobody else does. That is... That is a tougher part of fandom, and I don't think, with the possible exception of Jodie Whittaker, I don't think that there has been an industrial dislike of a serving Doctor in the way that there was of Colin. And that must have been a very tough era to go through. Without having social media, without having the ability to seek out like-minded fans, you've just got the printed magazines mm-hmm. and, and what you do at a club. That, yeah. So, look, I... um. I think that's really insightful. Yeah. You're saying that Jody does get the, the same sort of heat as Colin? I, I'm saying that, y- yes, I think that there is... It's a different form of heat. It's not the industrial professional heat that I think that Colin really flogged, where people were producing whole magazines about how much they hated Colin and the era, and JNT had to be sacked and Colin had to be sacked. And uh, it's more social now? And it's more social now. I th- but right. I think I think that they are they are probably the two eras where being for the Doctor has probably been hardest, where you felt most like a minority, sometimes beating your head against a brick wall. Uh, there have been negative views on all the other Doctors. McCoy certainly got it. Tennant and Smith got it. Capaldi got it. But I think that the the voices against Colin and Jodie have been the loudest in the moments they've been in the role. Well, you know, I think Colin and Jodie represent the two biggest changes in the show. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I think that's what people are reacting against because Doctor Who, the first four Doctors, very straightforward. Davo comes along and he's young but generally he's sort of acting like Hartnell and, well, to my mind anyway, it's yeah, fairly it, it, traditional. It's a young person playing an old doctor. Yeah. Yeah. But then Colin comes along and it is just wildly different. You know, the, the, the throttling of Perry, the attitude, you know. Yeah. <laughs> even ending that episode whether you know, I'm the doctor, whether you like it or not sort of thing. Yeah. Super duper different. And again, with Jodie, super duper different. I mean, she's a woman for starters. Yeah. You know, there's never been one of those before in the show. And, and there are other aspects of it too. You know, Chibnall's writing suddenly takes a, a, a swing away from the way Moffat was writing. And, you know, although his writing took a swing away from RTDs, people seem to like RTDs and Moffat's writing a lot more than Chibnall's. So I sort of see why they're the two doctors who have copped the most because they're the two biggest deviations from what people expect of the show yeah that's really interesting i I think i think you're onto something there i think that is correct Uh, but also i do have sympathy for 
people who arrive in fandom, which is by definition meant to be people who are fanatical about a television show, mm. to find that the mood is not wholly pleasant or popular or, or, or for that show. And those of us who've been around fandom a long time have hopefully learned how to have those conversations in a positive way to look for the good to be able to talk about the bad we also i think the longer we're around fandom do have that attitude of it's okay if we're not really dealing with this era because give it three years and another era will be around the corner and there might be something we will like but if you've just come into fandom and this is your era that isn't a context that you necessarily have so yeah it perhaps would be quite confronting to go hang on I thought we all liked this show. Isn't that why we're here? No? Okay. We... You see people asking those questions. Yeah. So, uh, look, I think that's actually a really interesting insight. And for our final letter of the the regular run of Primary Sources, it once again just highlights how there is a, um, a, 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 a sense in fandom where history does... Not necessarily repeat itself, but as as George Lucas would say, it it rhymes. Yeah, it sort of rhymes. <laughs> exactly, because all these letters, whether they're in issues of Sonic Screwdriver that you read me, issues of Dwim that I've read you, it's all fans. It's all fan comment. Yeah. You know? So so to end on a fanish discussion, I think is quite right. Yeah. No, I I think that that actually was a very insightful letter to finish on. Excellent. Look, now all that's left for me to do, Dave, is to say thank you for being my co-pilot on more than half these episodes over the past two years. It's been very fun to have your insights. No, thank you for uh, putting this all together and doing the hard yards. Most of the time, I just rock up and you read to me and I react. <laughs> it's it's the least preparation I do for any of our podcasts. Very good. And and also in reverse order, the guests we've had over over time, uh, Michael Solko, the moderator of the much missed uh, Time Scoop podcast, Paul Hayes, the author of The Long Game, the inside story of how the BBC brought back Doctor Who, Alicia Neptune from the digitaldiarist.ca, Mark Cockrum from the All of Time and Space podcast, Gary Eilert from the Doctor Who Big Blue Box podcast, Mark John from the Diddly Dum podcast, Richard Smith from the Something Who podcast, Dwayne Bunny, co-host of the Sirens of Audio podcast, Ian Martin from the All of Time and Space podcast and the We're All Stories in the End podcast, and Stephen B from the New to Who podcast. If you haven't heard any of those episodes, folks, they're all on our podcast feed and will remain there exclusively because while I've started setting up some primary sources to drop on our YouTube channel of late, I've been holding back the ones with the guests, keeping them as something special for people to find on the podcast feed. So there it is. What a fun ride it's been. Thanks for listening to Primary Sources. Much like James Bond, it will return. And I guess all I've got to say is I've been Rob. And I've been Dave. We'll see you on the flip side. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>